It's good to be with you. Perhaps the first point of my sermon should be that Joe needs to introduce his daughter to more people. The, uh, um, with that said, look with me at Matthew 28, 16. Matthew 28, 16. I'm going to read this very familiar passage uh, to which we're appealing in numerous sermons during this conference, largely because the conference is about the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, verse 16. I just want to read verses 16 through 20, and then have a word of prayer. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. Father, we ask, We ask that your Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds as we consider what he has superintended, what he has inspired through the Apostle Matthew for the sake of the church. We pray that we would hear the voice of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, as he gives his church through his apostles, his final marching orders, as he tells us what our purpose is as a church in this world. May we hear what Jesus is saying. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's the basic thesis of the topic that I'm really addressing today. The basic thesis is this, the Great Commission is accomplishable. The Great Commission is accomplishable. Now that may seem an odd thesis in as much as it may seem unnecessary as a sermon. Christ gave the church a command. So why even talk about whether it can actually be accomplished? Isn't it obvious that it's accomplishable if he gave us the command? Well, there are at least four reasons that I think we need to address this topic. First, because it's incorrect to assume that because God commands something, we have the requisite ability in and of ourselves to fulfill that command. Quite the opposite is true. Just think about two other commands given in the Gospel of Matthew. Think of the great commandment in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That command is impossible to keep in and of ourselves. Adam failed to keep that command. Israel failed to keep that command. We failed to keep that command. Jesus, in fact, came as the second Adam to keep that command for us. Think of another command in Matthew, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect. Therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, another command we on its face know is impossible in and of ourselves to keep. The only man who's ever been perfect is the perfect man, Jesus Christ, tempted in every way, yet without sin. But it's impossible for us in and of ourselves. The second reason that it's important we address this notion of the Great Commission being accomplishable is because the poor use of Scripture has caused an incorrectly optimistic view of the Great Commission's accomplishment. If you think about a passage like Matthew 24, 14, the gospel, this gospel will be preached in all the earth or in all the nations, and then the end will come. And so what people do is they, they take this phrase in the Greek, panta ta ethne, panta all, all ta the nations, all these nations, all the nations, they take that and they say, we can identify with scientific precision what is meant by a nation, and then we identify who those people are. There are 3,100 plus such people groups. And what we do in preaching the gospel to them is we take short-term teams, we drop them in there for a couple weeks, and once we've reached all 3,100 of them, then we can usher in the return of Christ. Now, that's just utter nonsense for a variety of reasons, uh, most of which I don't have time to address today. But it causes a kind of false optimism about our ability to define pontata ethne with absolute scientific precision to send teams there and then to bring about the return of Christ. Third reason it's important that we address this is because it is hard to, accomp- it is hard to discuss accomplishing the Great Commission when there is so much confusion about what we are being commissioned to do. What is, in fact, the Great Commission teaching? It seems everything has become missions, so now nothing is missions. What, in fact, is the mission of the church? If you want to read a book by that, Kevin DeYoung has a book called What is the Mission of the Church that's worth your time. My point is simply that we are easily distracted by any number of tasks and our eyes are taken off of the Great Commission. Fourth, because all of the above, everything I've just mentioned, has caused excessive cynicism about identifying what the Great Commission is and to whom we are commissioned to go. It's as if we've become, because of the abuse of the Great Commission, the misunderstanding and confusion around the Great Commission, we've become cynical about being able to identify what the mission of the church is and the to whom we are to go. As a result, we lose the kind of dogged determination and laser focus on what Christ has commissioned us to do. So today my hope is to help us see that the Great Commission is accomplishable. To do that, I want to move through uh, what Jesus teaches us here in Matthew 28. And I want us to see three reasons that the Great Commission is accomplishable. Uh, And they roughly fall out in the verses that we know as the Great Commission. In verse 18, we will see the authority of Christ who gave the commission. In verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, we're going to see the clarity of Christ's commission. And in verse 20, at the last phrase, we'll see the promise of Christ in his commission. But before we look at those three reasons the Great Commission is accomplishable, let's look at the setting. Look with me at Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now the setting of this is somewhere between Easter Sunday, the day on which we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and the day of his ascension, which is 40 days later. And we're not quite sure exactly where to locate this, but it seems to be the latter part of that 40-day time in which Jesus is with his apostles. You'll notice that the 11 disciples were commanded to meet him in Galilee. We know about the 11 because one of the disciples, the one who betrayed Christ, had committed suicide. And so now we have this emphasis on the 11 disciples who went to Galilee. And notice that phrase at the end of verse 16, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. That's not just incidental to the text. It isn't just, we want to give you a little bit of geography. The point in Matthew, every time a mountain comes up, Jesus is teaching something important. So you think about Matthew 5 through 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. Or you think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Or you think of Mount Golgotha, where he's crucified. And now, this mountain where he's meeting them in Galilee to give what are his final marching orders. The fact that it's given on a mountain is emphasizing the importance of what Jesus is about to say to his disciples. It's a kind of commissioning story. It's akin to the Old Testament commissioning stories, in fact. It's akin to the story with Moses being commissioned, or with Joshua's commissioning, or with Gideon's commissioning, or... Um, Jeremiah's commissioning, we see this same kind of story. Now note the emphasis as well as we walk through the primary passage we know as the Great Commission on the word all. It's, it's actually striking how this comes out. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has all authority. This word in Greek is pos or panta or pan, um, depending on how it's being used in that particular place, but it just means all. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Same Greek word. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Same Greek word that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always and actually in the greek that's all the days i am with you all the days to the end of the age all authority all nations all i have commanded all the days i have all authority in heaven and earth it's all mine i want to go to all the peoples of the earth they're all mine i want them to obey all that i have commanded The whole counsel of God, it's all my word. And I'm going to be with you all the days. Without fail, there's not a moment that will pass that I am not with you. The emphasis is so so universal that there's a kind of exclusivity being emphasized here. There is no realm that is outside of his sovereign rule and power. There is no ethne, no people that is excluded from needing to hear the gospel being brought to faith in our triune Lord. There is no command of Christ the Lord that should be left out. There is not one moment in which Jesus fails to be with his church. The Great Commission really is a remarkable 
statement from the Lord and Savior of all regarding his final marching orders to the church. So let's look at the three reasons it's accomplishable. First, the Great Commission is accomplishable because of the unlimited authority of Christ. The universal, unlimited authority of Christ. Look again at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's an emphasis on everything. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. It's all mine. It's all been given to me. This is a fulfillment of what's been promised in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. That the one like a son of man will come to the ancient of days and he'll be given all authority in heaven and earth. This is a fulfillment of what we hear in Psalm 2, 7. When Jesus, singing through David by the Spirit, says, I will tell of the decree or I will tell of the covenant. The Father said to me, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's being fulfilled. It's all his. It's what Jesus said when he said, the Father has covenanted to me a kingdom. It's all his. He has authority over all things. Now as God, it was always all rightfully his. As the mediator, he fulfilled the purpose of his Father and has received the kingdom from him. As God, all authority is rightfully his. As God-man in our flesh, the second Adam, he is the heir of all things. He's received the kingdom and has been granted all authority. His unlimited and universal authority then becomes an encouragement to obey because of the nature of the one commanding. This is the king of kings. And these are his marching orders. He has authority over your life. All your life. He has authority over your church. All your church. You don't get to modify his orders a bit. You don't get to modify his orders that make you feel uncomfortable. Or that you find personally costly to you. These orders aren't just true if you feel passionately about them. Or if you don't feel passionately about them, they don't somehow become untrue. You obey because the king has commanded you to. You don't wait for a calling to obey. You obey because you've been given a command. This is not a command you obey only if you believe it matches your personality type or your giftings, or your passions, or whatever lame identity you've constructed that allows for some kind of disobedience. Look, we don't accept homosexual marriage on the basis that people believe that's just who they are and that's just how God has wired them. We call it sinful disobedience. We don't, we don't accept any kind of sexual immorality on that basis. When we do accept it on that basis, we claim a realm where Christ's word no longer has authority. See, God made me this way, so God has no authority in this area of my life. Well, we shouldn't tolerate disobedience to the Great Commission on that same basis either. Christ's authority is universal. It's unlimited. It's without 
bounds. The local church should not construct excuses for why it can disregard the Great Commission. His unlimited and universal authority to obedience, as he has all the nations and times in his hands, is given to the church. That He's given that to the church. COVID-19, for example, does not stop the mission of the church. An unsettled America does not stop the mission of the church. National prosperity and national desperation or depression don't stop the mission of the church. Church budgets that are way off and low don't stop the mission of the church. Ministers and missionaries who stumble and fall don't stop the mission of the church. Wars, famines, pestilences, plagues, natural disasters don't stop the mission of the church. It wasn't like Jesus came and gave the Great Commission and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Wait, here's a parenthetical comment. Unless times are hard and difficult, then don't do it. Just disregard that. Unless something I didn't foresee as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, unless there's something I didn't foresee that happens, like a plague, then, then put it on hold. Or maybe your church mission budget is really low this year, so no need to continue in the missionary endeavor because Jesus couldn't have possibly foreseen that, and so clearly the Great Commission doesn't apply to you currently. He has all those events in his hands. He is sovereign over them all. Not one is a mistake or an error. And it is because he is Lord of all, because he holds the universe in his hand, that we're a that we are confident his mission is accomplishable. Jesus promised his commission would be accomplished. Acts 1.8, we often take it as a corollary to the Great Commission, but it's actually not a command there. It's a promise. It's a prophecy. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be empowered, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Further, Christ said the gospel would be proclaimed in all nations and then the end would come, Matthew 24, 14. It's a promise Christ makes. It's not a program given to us for the accomplishment of the Great Commission. It's a prophetic word about its fulfillment and its coming and the coming end of all things. Further, the Spirit of Christ gave a revelation of the fulfillment of this commission to his church through the Apostle John in Revelation 7, 9. We see that it's fulfilled. So we know it's accomplishable. If the sovereign of all creation makes a promise, that's money in the bank. He cannot lie. He promised it would be accomplished. He has authority over heaven and earth. Thus, it will be accomplished. Second, the Great Commission is accomplishable because of the unambiguous clarity of the command. Did you hear that? It's accomplishable because of the unambiguous clarity clarity of the command just in case you're not clear on what i mean unambiguous means that it's not open to more than one interpretation not open to more than one interpretation the great commission is unambiguously clear and frankly it's not rocket science to read it you do not have to be a great scholar of the greek language to read this unambiguously clear command It's clear in its command, and it's clear 
in the example of its execution by the apostles. If you wonder what Jesus meant in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, just go to the book of Acts and see what the apostles do when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's clear in both its command and the example of its execution by the apostles. Look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the first part of verse 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's one imperatival verb here, one command, make disciples. And the command to make disciples is a command to plant churches. Disciples, by their nature, live in community or fellowship with one another and with those who teach them. They hear, they listen, and they obey. That's undergirded by what Jesus' disciples have already learned from him. They have this in mind when they hear this command. We know that in their execution of it, but we also know that from the Gospel of Matthew. So go back and look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And look at verse 18. This is the famous scene in which Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And he answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on and tells him this in verse 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice what Jesus is saying about his own mission. I will build my church church and he'll build it upon the foundation of the apostolic witness we're told that in ephesians 2 20 that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets i will build my church that's his mission that's christ's mission the apostles have that ringing in their ears when they hear go therefore and make disciples of all the nations they've been told they're going to give the keys of the kingdom what do keys do keys open gates or doors and They close gates or doors. They unlock and they lock them. You're given the keys of the kingdom. What does it mean to unlock them? To loose the things on earth that have been loosed in heaven? It means to proclaim the gospel so that people enter the kingdom of God. And what does it mean to bind the things on earth that have been been bound in heaven? It means to lock the door. That's called church discipline. We see that in Matthew 18. Look there, Matthew 18. This community discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, and look down at verse 17. If he refuses, you've gone through these steps of church discipline, if he refuses to listen to them, that's the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven the church is to proclaim the saving gospel to open the gate the church is to exercise church discipline to close the gate that's why we tell it to the church now there is no emphasis it's true in matthew 28 19 on proclaiming or preaching if you look there people often point that out that there is no emphasis on proclaiming or preaching if you look at matthew 28 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them. Now you will see this kind of thing come up under verse 20 and teaching them, but people say, well, that doesn't say proclaim or preach. It says to go and make disciples. And what I want to argue is in context of what's happening here in the Great Commission, in the context of planting churches, proclamation is being assumed. We know that from, for example, 20, Matthew 24, 14. This gospel will be proclaimed in all the nations. Or Matthew 26, 13. Jesus de-emphasizes preaching here, though, be, not because Jesus is somehow worried about the Western imperialist imposition of preaching. That's not his concern. He de-emphasizes it because we're looking at largely what follows and defines proclamation in disciple-making. What follows and defines the proclamation of the gospel in disciple-making is that you baptize and you instruct. You baptize and you instruct. I'll get to that in a minute. But think about the fact that Jesus talks clearly about proclamation in his great commission passage, if you will, in Luke 24 and verses 47 through 49. You will go and proclaim the gospel in all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And at Pentecost, we see what they do. They go and proclaim the gospel. But this is talking largely about what happens following the proclamation of the gospel. You proclaim the gospel, that's assumed in the making of disciples, and as people respond to the gospel message in faith, you baptize them, that's their entrance into the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, that's a participle, you baptize them, and then you teach them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, the preaching of the gospel is responded to in faith, and those people who respond in faith are baptized, and then they're instructed in the church. We, in fact, see that. Look at Acts chapter 2. We see that clearly. In Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles that, and those in the upper room, and that they're speaking in foreign languages, and they're proclaiming the mighty acts of God. That's a way of saying the salvific acts of God throughout history. They're proclaiming that, and then Peter stands up and begins to preach the gospel and points to Jesus Christ. And in verse 37, we read this. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. Acts 2, verse 37. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, doctrine, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we could go on. You see, we're going to see the Great Commission in every one of these passages and acts played out in just this way. They proclaim the gospel. People believe. They baptize them into the church. And then they begin to instruct them and teach them and grow them up in the church, and they fellowship with one another in that community and then encouragement to one another. This great commission of making disciples is actually 
um, helped along this command, this imperative verb, make disciples, by these three participles. Go. That first participle is taking on the nature of the command to make disciples. It's taking on the nature of the imperative. You are to go. In order for disciples to be made in all the nations, you have to go to those nations to make disciples. So you go to those nations and make disciples, and then we get this word, baptize. Baptizing is a kind of participle of means. All those who believe are baptized into the triune Lord, his name, the name of the Father who decreed to save you, the name of the Son who accomplished your salvation, the name of the Holy Spirit who applies your salvation or the work of Christ to you. Teaching is also a means, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All those who are baptized into the church upon profession of faith in Christ are to be taught to obey all his holy will. They're to be taught to obey the whole counsel of God. So the Great Commission is unambiguously clear as to its task and even to the example of how it's fulfilled by the apostles. It's about church planting. You proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. You go where unbelievers are. You proclaim the gospel to them. Those who believe are baptized into the church and they're instructed, they're brought up, they're matured. But the Great Commission isn't just unambiguously clear in its command, but really in the scope of its command. When I say the scope of its command, I mean the scope of its command in a universal sense. That word go does bear a kind of geographical understanding. Geographical in as much as you are moving out from where you are to where the gospel has not been heard. We can see that thrust in Luke 24, 49. You're to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Father has, or the promise of the Father has come upon you. And in Luke 24, 47, you are to preach the gospel to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So you start in Jerusalem and you go out to all the nations. We see that in Acts 1, 8. You are, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are going to proclaim Christ or be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There is a going out. Now, some have argued this phrase, all nations, pantata ethne, all the nations, equals Gentiles exclusively, those who are not Jews. But we cannot argue that it means Gentiles for the express reason that it must include Jews and Gentiles. Minimally, Jesus is the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He has come to save his people. He is the Lord of both Jew and Gentile. Jesus has authority, Daniel 7, 13-14, over Jewish and Gentile nations. The apostles are to make disciples beginning in Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The eschatological judgment of the, of the, or the end times, sorry, judgment of the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 32. Pontata ethne is there. Necessarily includes Jewish and Gentile nations. We can see that in Paul's missionary journeys. He begins and cares about the Jews, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation, to the Jew first, and also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. I want to go where Christ 
has not been known. We see that especially in Romans 15, if you look there. Romans 15 and verse 19, Christ says, I, I, in verse 18, that I'll venture to speak of nothing except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to faith to obedience by word and deed. He goes on in verse 19 and says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, that is modern-day southern Albania, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He has made a circular pattern from Jerusalem all the way around to modern-day southern Albania and back. And he says, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ in all of those places. If 1% of those places had heard the name of Jesus, that would be shocking at this point in time. But he says he's fulfilled the gospel. Look down at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that's from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. There's no room for me to work there anymore. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. In other words, you're starting to find out that Romans, one of the major functions of Romans is it's a missionary support letter. Paul is saying, I'm going to come visit you. I long to see you. And when I come see you, I want you to help me out financially. I want you to help me out with supplies. I want you to help me out personally and spiritually. Be an encouragement to me, and I'll be an encouragement to you. And as I come through, I want you to understand... I've already fulfilled my ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to southern Albania, and there are more peoples who've never heard this gospel, and so now I'm going to them. There's no more room for me. Now, why does he say that? He doesn't mean that there are no more people in those regions who haven't heard the name of Jesus Christ. Clearly, he knows that 99, 98, 99% of the people in those regions have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. But he knows there are peoples... um, who haven't heard, they have, well, let me just not take away my own thunder. Look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. What Paul is saying, the only explanation really for no more room, is Paul's understanding that where churches are established, he has a continuous duty to move onward to where they are not. Churches are founded there. That's what he means by I fulfilled my ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. There are churches there. I've planted churches there. Those churches now reach those regions. But I have an imperative, a missionary imperative, to go where there are no churches, where no foundation has been laid, where there is no witness to the name of Christ in that place. I have a missionary imperative to go there. Paul gets that missionary imperative from the mouth of Jesus himself. Not only in Jesus' appearance to him, but in the Great Commission, which you can bet he heard from the apostles. He has the imperative. Whether we can precisely define what constitutes all ethnes, pontotal ethne or not, minimally, we can say it includes nations, tribes, and languages that have not heard the gospel, that have no gospel witness. We don't have to be great scholars to figure that out. That's just basic reading. Basic. We can argue all day long about whether ethno-linguistic people groups, this definition Radius uses, is an imposition on the text 
by missiologists that are modern or not. What we cannot do, what we cannot do is ignore the fact that if an entire tribe, an entire people, an entire language group lacks the gospel in their language, if they have no Christian witness among them, then we are biblically obligated to go there. Jesus leaves no room for tolerance on this question. He has no room in his worldview, if you will, for any other religion among the nations. Jesus' claim is exclusive, universal and therefore exclusive. It's all mine. I alone should be known and worshipped in all the earth. We think of pluralism as something that's beautiful, oftentimes. Isn't it beautiful that we can all live together in a pluralistic society? Jesus looks down at pluralism as an affront to his lordship. He looks at pluralism in religion and philosophy as soul-damning idolatry. There is just zero ambiguity in the Great Commission. We proclaim Christ, and when folks believe, we baptize them. We organize them into churches to care for one another, teach them to obey all God's holy word. And we keep doing this among every people group where there is no gospel witness. We keep going, we keep going, we keep going. It's simple, but it's not easy. And that leads to the third reason the Great Commission is accomplishable. Third, it is accomplishable because of the unceasing presence of Christ. It's accomplishable because of the unlimited authority of Christ. It's accomplishable because of the unambiguous clarity of the command. And it is accomplishable because of the unceasing presence of Christ. Look back at Matthew 28, verse 20 again. And the last phrase, and behold, I am with you always. In the Greek, incidentally, you don't pick that up as well. I am is ego me. This is that claim that God makes of himself. I am. I am with you all the days to the end of the age until I return. I am with you all the days. This is the same statement. I will be with you or I am with you that God gives to Moses. Who am I to go to Pharaoh, the greatest ruler on the earth, and tell him, let me take the basis of your economy and depart into the wilderness to worship our God? Who am I to do that? God's response, I'll be with you. Joshua, who am I to take the people on the promise, into the promised land and conquer all these wicked nations? I will be with you. Gideon, who am I among all the tribes of Israel? My family's small. My tribe is insignificant. Who am I to take on these foreign armies? God's answer, I will be with you. Jeremiah, who am I to speak to Israel in her sin? Israel and Judah, both the northern and southern kingdom, have turned aside to idolatry. They no longer care about God's law, God's promises. They are pursuing their sin to their own curse. Who am I to go out and call them to repentance, to tell them about their coming exile, to tell them of the new covenant, to go out as a prophet like that who will face certain death? Who am I? I will be with you. This is an Old Testament call narrative. God will be with you. 
Christ is saying, I am with you always. That, that, that's an inclusio around the whole Gospel of Matthew. An inclusio is brackets. Those brackets literarily tell you what this book is about to a large degree. Matthew 1.23. The virgin shall be with child, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 28.20. I am with you always. Christ is God with us all the days. And it is because of his unceasing presence that the Great Commission is accomplishable. It's an encouragement for two reasons. It's an encouragement because it means that Christ upholds our faith. He upholds our faith. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. In Hebrews 1.1, the author starts out saying, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. Talking about the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has made the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power upholds your faith by the word of his grace. You, as a living being, would cease to be if Jesus for a moment stopped sustaining you by the word of his power. And your faith would cease to be if Jesus for a moment ceased to be with you, upholding you. If Christ is not with us but one moment, we would be spiritually lost, undone, damned. He sustains our every breath and every beat of our hearts, and he sustains our whole salvation, our adoption, and our glory. So it's an encouragement to us that he is with us. It's also an encouragement, and perhaps more specifically to the missionary endeavor, it's an encouragement because Christ empowers our missionary efforts. That's what he's saying. He's empowering the proclamation of the word. Listen, it's because he is with us that we're able to do anything. Anything. We could not keep the Great Commission without him with us. That's why he promised us to send his spirit. The Spirit will lead his apostles into all the truth. The Spirit will come as the witness of Christ, and we will also be his witnesses. The Spirit, wait in Jerusalem until the gift or the promise of my Father has come upon you. Because you can't go out in power apart from me being present with you by my Spirit. So wait there, and when I come upon you, I'll empower you. When I come upon you by the Spirit, I will empower you to speak the word. This commission is not made good by our pragmatic strategies built upon the shifting sand of cultural anthropology. This commission is made good by the powerful presence of Christ by his Spirit. In fact, every word we preach would fall to the ground apart from the ministry of the Spirit of Christ, applying it to the hearts and minds of our listeners. It is the power 
and presence of Christ that makes the Great Commission accomplishable. I hope you hear what Jesus is saying here. I have unlimited, unbounded, universal authority. It's all mine. Every nation, tribe, and tongue on the earth is mine. Every square inch of the earth Jesus looks upon, as Abraham Kuyper said, Jesus looks upon and declares, mine. It's all mine. Now here comes the command of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. I have universal authority and I have given you an unambiguously clear command. That is the mission of your church. That is the mission of every Christian. Your identity is you belong to Christ. You're his. You've been bought with a price. You've been renamed. Your old man is dead. You've been resurrected to new life. You belong to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. And what your purpose is, is to make him known to all the earth. That is our identity and our purpose. That is who we are and what we're to do as Christians and as Christ's church. It's clear. It's unambiguous. It is only our sin that ever fouls that up and makes it unclear. And Christ says, I will be with you, or I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. I am always present, unrelentingly present with you. The 18th century Baptist pastor John Gill said it well. Jesus promised he would be with them in a spiritual sense to assist them in their work, to comfort them under all discouragements, to supply them with his grace, and to protect them from all enemies and preserve from all evils, which is a great encouragement both to minister the word and the ordinances, or baptism and Lord's Supper, and to attend to them. The command is simple. The commander is all authoritative and he is always with us, empowering us. May we be faithful. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks. We give thanks for the gift of your son. We give thanks that you in love sent him on mission to keep the law that we failed to keep that you, in the fullness of time, sent forth your Son, born of woman, as you promised from the moment of our fall to save us in the skull-crushing seed of the woman. That you sent him in the fullness of time, born of woman, born under the law, to keep the law that your people, that we have failed to keep, so that he might redeem those who are under the law and we might be adopted as sons by the spirit of adoption who comes into our hearts so that we cry out to you as our Father. We know this is 
the work that you have decreed, Father, and your love for us. The work that your Son has accomplished in his mission among us. And that your, the work that your Spirit has applied to us so that we are united to Christ through faith and thus receive all his benefits and more than everything else, receive him. We thank you, Father, that your Son has given his church an unambiguously clear command that he has promised to be with us by his Spirit to accomplish it. We pray that your Spirit would move among us in such a way that we would be caused to be ever more faithful so that every tribe and tongue and nation would sing the glory of the Lamb who was slain that we might join them one day, that we would look forward to that great choir when we sing alongside of them. Keep us faithful in our small part in that as both Christian, individual Christians and as the church of whom Christ is the head. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.